0: الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على باده الذي نصطف أما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم فاطر السماوات والأرض جعل لكم من أنفسكم أزواج ومن ال من الأعами أزواج فيه ليس كمثله شيء وهو السميع البصير صدق صدق الله العظيم سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين Allahumma salli ala sayyidina Muhammadi wa ala ali sayyidina Muhammadin wa barik wa Allahumma salli ala sayyidina Muhammadi wa ala ali sayyidina Muhammadi wa barak wa sallim Allahumma salli ala sayyidina Muhammadi wa ala ali sayyidina Muhammadi wa barik wa sallim i <clears> and <throat> everybody for coming to this Mihrab Foundation Sacred Knowledge class on the 99 names of Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala We first begin by praising Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala He's the one who fashioned us he's the one who created us he created everything around us and He blessed us with His bounties and His favors. And without Him, there would be no bounties or anything that we would have accomplished by ourselves. And we send peace and blessings upon Rasulullah wasallam, upon His family, upon His wives, upon His progeny, and upon His companions and all, all those that followed them in their ways. <coughs> I might be a little fidgety today just because I, have, I think I had too strong a coffee, so... Forgive me, inshallah. Um, anyway, so this week we're continuing with uh, the next set of names. Inshallah, we'll try and cover a couple of names today. So last week, anybody remember what we covered last week? Which name? Huh? Which name? Malik, Malik right? So we covered Al-Malik last week. <clears throat> and I usually end up speaking too long, so we won't go into exactly what it was last week. Inshallah, maybe if people are taking notes, you can get that from them if you missed it. <coughs> there's also a PDF which gets sent out with the emails uh, of this book so you can, you know, read about it, uh, read about the name inshallah. So this week the next name is that comes is Al-Quddus. So in short, this name means the holy. Now there's as we, you know, look at all of these different names that are going to come up, we find that it's not really one simple translation for these names, but it's rather an entire Um, explanation of what the name means, right? So in short, what happens is they'll give a basic definition or basic translation and then the whole rest of the chapter is based on explaining this name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Al-Quddus, which means holy, and it comes in the Qur'an a couple of times. But it comes, it's derived from the word uh, Quds. And this word, right, the root word of it, means purity or it means Cleanness or cleanliness. So something which is pure. That's the, the root that it is derived from. So we have a few different things that this word is attached to in some form or another. For example, we know al-Bayt right? al-Muqaddas. Anybody heard of al-Bayt al-Muqaddas? In Jerusalem, right? in Philistine, this was the masjid. This was the, the place where the Prophet wasallam he traveled to from Makkah Mukarrama for his Isra wal-Miraj. And then he prayed with the Anbiya. All the Anbiya, their souls were gathered and he prayed with them. And then he ascended to the heavens. Now this was not the Dome of the Rock, which we oftentimes think, right? Dome of the Rock is on the grounds of Baytul Maqtas. Uh, but it's not the Dome of the Rock. The actual, the actual masjid is down the street from it. You guys know what I'm talking about by Dome of the Rock? It's the one that's like all, you know, uh, the perfect, the shape with the golden dome on top and everything. So that's, that's nearby. <coughs> Uh, and the reason it's called al baytul muqaddas is because as we know in the beginning of Islam uh, and for the past nations, this was the Qibla, right? This was the direction that the past nations used to pray towards. And in the beginning of Islam, this is the direction that the, that the Muslims used to pray in as well, towards Jerusalem. And so it's called the house, the, or the pure house rather, because it's a place where people would go to purify themselves of their sins. So just like we have Makkah now, Makkah Mukarramah and the Kaaba now, people go there. Why? To make tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to repent for their sins. So similarly, that's what al baytul muqaddas was. Uh, paradise is also called the place of Quds, because it's a place of purity, complete purity and cleanliness. There's no filth, there's no najasa, there's no sin, there's nothing uh, immoral that takes place in Jannah. And so Jannah is also called, called the place of Quds. Jibril alayhi salam is also known as al-ruhul qudus, meaning the holy angel, right? the archangel or the pure angel. And the reason Jibreel the angel Gabriel is known as Al-Ruhul Qudus, is because he is free from any mistakes or faults. Now all the angels are free from mistakes and faults because they are not, they don't have the capacity to, uh, they don't have a free will. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them a command and they do it. That's why as we've discussed before also, humankind has the ability to go, uh, to reach a level beyond the angels. That if we do good, we had, the, we had the ability and the choice to do evil. But despite that, resisting it and choosing to do good can elevate us above the angels. But Jibril, being the head of the angels, he is given this title, free from making any mistakes and faults. So it's interesting because there's been other, other uh, religions, and there's even been some sects within Islam that have made basically you know, weird types of claims about uh, the whole process of revelation. Right? What was Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi told when he, went, when he came to Medina Munawwara? He told the people of the Jewish faith that, you know, I'm the last prophet, so follow me. There's a chair here. You can maybe uh, bring that to the side or, or here, back there. Uh, so he told them, I'm the final prophet, follow me. And they said, um, you can bring it maybe over here. Okay. Let's just put it in the second row or so they said that which angel is it that gives you revelation? And Rasulullah Sallallahu told them that it is Jibril Islam. They said, well, if it was if it was Mikhail, we would have followed you. If it was the angel Michael, we would have followed you. Uh, people who are within the umbrella of Islam, right? Other sects have said that Jibril A'lam he made a mistake in giving bringing revelation to the Prophet Sallallahu Alayhi wa sallam. Revelation was meant to go to Ali radhiAllahu Anhu, right? Very few people, and these are people that went very extreme. Right? Um, uh, in some of their beliefs. But this is not possible. The angels cannot make mistakes. Jibreel Aisam specifically, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses him as al-Ruhul Qudus. So he doesn't those types of mistakes and faults are not possible for them. So then Imam Ghazali rahimullah he goes on and starts explaining what does the holy mean? That when we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al Quddus, what does it mean? So he says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is free from any attribute which a sense might perceive or imagination may conceive or to which imagination may instinctively turn or by which the conscience may be moved or which thinking demands what does that mean what does that mean basically he says laysa it's a verse of quran that there is nothing unto like allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that what does it mean it means that anything your mind can conceive of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is beyond that right so there are certain verses in the Qur'an known as the Mutashabihat, those verses which aren't completely clear. And you know, we, we can't come to a, a definite conclusion about their exact meaning. Uh, we can still draw a lesson from them, but as far as exactly what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala meant, we, we don't know, right? So for example, Allah Subh'anaHu, wa Ta-A'la refers to, uh, <coughs> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to the waj of Allah in the Qur'an. So he says that on the, uh, on the last day or that day when everything will be erased, everything will be eliminated, nothing will remain in existence except for the wajj of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now if we translate waj into English, and the ulama have usually, they've uh, refrained from translating it. Even in Arabic, they used to traditionally not even give an explanation for it. Uh, but what it means, wajj, if you were to translate it into English, it means face. Now, we can't take this literally because then it means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, everything is gone except for the face of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, meaning His face remains. <coughs> and we discussed this earlier, a few weeks ago also, slightly. So, some people have said, well, Allah ta'ala speaks of waj here, right? What we translate to as face, that means He has a face. But Imam Ghazali is pointing out that Al-Quddus means that whatever you can imagine Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be, He is beyond that. Right, so you might imagine him, oh, he's a face, what does he look like? No, he's beyond that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala transcends those things. Anything that you can fathom when you try to picture Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because we don't try to picture him, because he is without body. He is a being that exists, and we don't understand exactly the, the, the essence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because he is too far beyond us. Right? He is that perfect and absolute being, and our minds are limited. So we cannot completely comprehend and grasp what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the, the essence, the, that and being of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's basically what this paragraph is. And this is the basis in much of aqidah also, this verse of Quran which says, لَيْسَكَ مِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ Then Imam Ghazali says an interesting point. And he says, I don't say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is free from fault or defect because this is borderline insult to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I don't say he's free from defect, but rather he says, I say he transcends perfection. So one is coming from a negative angle that we don't say he is free from defect. Rather, we say there's perfection and Allah Ta'ala is beyond and transcendent above uh, perfection. And he says the reason for this, why is it borderline insult? Because it entails, if we say Allah Ta'ala is free from defect, it entails a possibility, it entails a possibility of a defect once having existed. That maybe there was a defect and then he overcame that defect. So he says similarly, when describing a king, you wouldn't say Oh, the king is... <clears throat> who is the king? Well, the king is not a weaver. Right? This is the example he gives. Or you won't say the king is a, He's not a tailor, for example. Because this might tell somebody that, well, maybe the king once was some tailor. Right? Maybe he was a weaver. We don't say that about that, about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or about this king. Right? We say, no, this king is... We, we use other terms to describe him. Because it might give someone the idea that maybe he was a tailor once pot a time, and now he is not. Right? So what happens? When we think of certain governments around the Muslim world, we say, what... We call them shepherds, because a hundred years ago they were a family of shepherds, and so that remains with them. Now, although today that maybe certain kings are no longer shepherds, once we say they're yeah if they're no sh- they're not they're not shepherds, it tells us that they once upon a time they were shepherds. So this is why Imam Ghazali, rahimullah, has said we don't say Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is free from defect because it entails maybe there was a defect and He overcame it. Rather, we say He transcends every attribute of perfection. Uh, which the majority of creatures think as perfection. So what does does this mean? He says, first, what does creation do, right? Insan, humankind, what do we do? We think, okay, what is perfection? We first look at ourselves. We look at our own image and we say, we define what is, we, we realize two things when we look at ourselves. We first become aware of our attributes and then we realize what are the perfect attributes and these are known as perfection terms. So what are the perfect attributes? It says the perfect attributes as defined by ourselves are things like knowledge, power, hearing, seeing, speaking, our will to do something and our uh, choosing to do something. And then we realize a second thing and we realize what our imperfections might be. So the imperfections are the opposite of those terms. So for example, you have knowledge. On the the flip side, you might have ignorance, right? Or what are the other uh, uh, imperfect terms? They are ignorance, debility, deafness, blindness, dumbness, right? The uh, lack of ability to speak. So he says, this is what insan does. And then we define Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by describing those attributes that we deem to be perfect. And we make him free of, or we deny him those things that make us imperfect. Right? So we say, he says, that's what insan does. However, this is not a perfect description of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because He's beyond all of these things. These are those things that we have deemed to be perfection. And so when it comes to things like speech, the kalam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is a very uh, ambiguous attribute of Allah ta'ala because, I mean, we don't want to go too deep into aqidah discussions, but as we mentioned, there will be some aqidah discussions that come up in this book. And I would encourage everybody to read the introductions of this. Uh, I skipped the introduction. For a reason. It's very heady and it's, uh, you can understand some of it, but if you don't have a deep-rooted uh, idea of, of aqidah, it becomes more difficult to understand. But it's, you know, it's nice sometimes because you see the academia of Islam. I mean, we say that Islam is a simple religion, and it is. It's very easy, to, it's, there's simple things that are required of us. But uh, that sometimes gives us the false notion of the, the, the depth that Islam has. And that's the beauty of Qur'an, that it speaks in such simple terms to the layman and the people who don't have you know, as much intellect to comprehend uh, great things. But the very same verses speak on a much higher and deeper level to people of better understanding as well. And this is the beauty of the Qur'an. You realize that only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could have made such, such, a, such a book right, that can speak to so many different people on so many different levels. And so he says, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is beyond these things. That we can't simply look at ourselves and say, okay, these are what we think to be perfect and these are what we deem to be imperfect. And so this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is and what He is not. He says, no, what's more appropriate is that we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is transcendent beyond these things. And why? Then he quotes the verse, "Fatiro Samawati wal Ard, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the originator of the heavens and the earth. Right? Originator meaning He created them. He is the one that fashioned them. جعل لكم من He made for you from amongst yourselves spouses or mates. وَمِنَ الْأَنْعَامِ أَزْوَاجَ. And he made from amongst cattle also mates. And he multiplies you through that method of having a mate or spouse. wa كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٌ وَهُوَ السَّمِيعُ الْبَصِيرُ. And he is there's nothing like him. Laysa شَيْءٌ. Absolutely nothing like Allah subhanahu wa taala. He is a Sami and he is Al Basir, meaning he is Absolute in his hearing and absolute in his seeing. Right, so we're going back to the kalam of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. We mentioned even when Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala mentions His kalam, what does He say in the Quran? He says, Allah Musa taklima." That Musa, Musa alayhi salam, he spoke to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. But how? This taklima right comes from the same root words of kalam, meaning to speak, but. It doesn't tell us how He spoke because we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's kalam is also without sound and without letter. So how, how can that be? We, we can't come to this understanding because we attribute speech, right? Because of this verse, Laysa Shay. Our speech is through sound and through letter and through hearing. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because He has said لَيْسَكَ مِثْلِهِ means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's speech is something else. It's not like a volume that sometimes goes up and so the Anbiya hear it, this and that. Rather... It's, we just, we can't completely understand it. And even when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes it, He describes it in a way that doesn't really give us more information. It just says, like, he spoke to, uh, uh, Musa alayhis spoke to Allah in speech. What does that mean? It doesn't give us any, any more information, right? Then <clears throat> the ulama write uh, that the scholars have said that what is Al-Quddus, defining, sort of explaining it uh, in summary. That the scholars have said, Al-Quddus is the one who is above need and whose great names are above being deficient. He is the one who purified the souls against sinning. So what did we say? Al-Quddus comes from Quds, which means clean or to purify. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Quddus because He purifies the souls against sinning. And then what else? He is above being limited to time and space. Meaning, we don't give Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala a place. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in a particular place. Because place and time are creations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is transcendent beyond time and space. If we give Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala a place, then what happens? We're saying that He is being confined by His creation. Right? To say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sitting in the heavens, that means He created the heavens and now He's inside the heavens. That doesn't make sense. Because Allah ta'ala is not bound by His creation. And time and space is a creation of His and so the the ulama write that sure. Sure. so it looks like there's a, some kind of scheduling error yeah. on, the, on the school's part and someone else has this room at five. Oh really? If there's a room a couple doors down we can go into there. Oh yeah? So that's okay, we should probably should over there. There's a big group waiting to join. Okay. Oh really? Hey, sorry about that. Okay. Uh, let me just finish up this sure. point, then we can move over, inshallah. So he says that <clears throat> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is above being limited to time and space. He is the one who purifies the souls of his friends against feeling comfortable with what is commonly accepted. And he is the one who entertain their souls with the mysteries of revelation. So inshallah we'll move over there. It's a good spot to stop. Thank you. Okay. Everybody settled in? Okay, so what does he say? He says, Imam Uzali says, he's the one who purifies the souls of his friends of his odia against feeling comfortable with what is commonly accepted. Now usually what happens when you want to transform an idea of people, oftentimes in the beginning of a new idea there's a lot of resistance. And then as you continue pushing and pushing and pushing, people become desensitized to it. So for example, I mean look around us. Right? If you go, I remember Alhamdulillah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us the tawfiq of going for Hajj some, several years ago and we're only gone for three weeks right, only three weeks. Now over there I mean you're in Makkah Mokarrama, you're spending the day in the masjid, pretty much everybody is, uh, you know, everybody is dressed in a more like Islamic manner, right, and you'll get even, like the women will even be, you know, covered in hijab and this and that, and uh, towards the end of our stay in in, uh, for the Hajj time, there was a little girl, right, you'll find whoever's been there, you probably see little children, they're running around and they're selling uh, tissue, Right for a little bit of money, they're selling tissue and other things, and there was this young girl, you know, she had her little hijab on and she goes running over and selling tissue, and as she walks away, you know, her hijab kind of falls off, and even that was like after three weeks, you're not really seeing anybody that's not wearing hijab, it becomes like kind of uh, you become surprised by it, because why you became accustomed to it, right, and so what happens in today's society also when a a business wants to promote their product, they bombard us with it, right? And then we become, uh, we, we, become we begin thinking co- about it all the time, and then we're more likely when we go to the store to buy the product that we've been bombarded with. Also when it comes to different types of things, you know, and Islamically that just don't don't sit well with us, right? And this is why we say not, not to go into environments that are not uh, healthy for our iman, right? So for example, we've discussed before um, why we won't go to a bar, for example, right? Because what happens? You become desensitized to it. I've had friends who, when you're working, uh, even when I was working, there's something called networking. Did we talk about this? Networking? I mentioned it, right? No? I've mentioned it other places, so maybe I don't know if I'm repeating myself here. Um, anyway, something called networking, right? You go, you, you want to network and get to know your coworkers, people in higher positions of management, whatnot. And so usually these types of things happen at bars. Uh, A friend of mine would go, and we would tell him that, you know, you can't, you shouldn't be in a bar, right? It's like, it's not a good place, there's alcohol, we can't be there. Um, And he said, no, I'm not drinking, I don't, I'm not drinking, I'm just going to socialize so I can get ahead in my career, you know, because then when that promotion comes, then my boss will think of me, because I've spent time with him. Eventually, what happens, you become so desensitized to alcohol, it becomes no big deal for you anymore. You know, similarly, I mean, like when I was growing up, then... um, you know, my dad, he didn't even want us to use the term like uh, root beer, for example, right? <laughs> I'm not saying, oh, you can't drink root beer or it's like haram to use the term, okay? I'm just saying, you know, my father, he was very particular. He didn't like the term because it, associ- it was associated with beer in his mind. He didn't like it, right? Um, and, you know, you might think, okay, that's, maybe that's a little bit extreme and, you know, whatnot. But other people went to other extremes and they said that I'll allow people to drink in my house. I don't have to drink. So, you know, sometimes you might invite, like, non-Muslims over to your house, and there's nothing wrong with that. And they might, you know, it's, it's common for them to drink. But, you know, when it comes to these types of affairs, especially with our religion, usually the non-Muslims are very understanding. They're very understanding and very accommodating. If you just simply tell them that, you know, uh, we don't drink, and so if you could just, you know, maybe not, not drink, they will gladly abide. Like, they're very, you know, respectful people. They will gladly abide by it, right? And so... I know other people that have said, no, they, I don't have to drink and they'll allow people to bring alcohol into their home and you know, their guests will drink it. Over time, eventually, the person becomes desensitized to alcohol and then they'll eventually even taste it even if they don't drink it regularly. They'll taste it. And that's, that's a major sin in Islam, right? So what happens? We become desensitized to something. So Imam Ghazali has said that he, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Al-Quddus purifies the, friends of, the souls of his friends against feeling comfortable with what is commonly accepted. We become desensitized to sin, but the awliya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the friends of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah ta'ala keeps something in their heart. He keeps their heart firm. So when everyone else will become desensitized and accept things that maybe they shouldn't accept, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's awliya, they will still refrain from it. And they'll still recognize it and keep a dislike for it in their hearts. And this is the connection that the friends of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have with Al-Quddus. And, Subha- and then Imam Ghazali says that he is the one who entertained their souls with the mysteries of revelation. When you study fiqh, for example, in depth, right, in, in detail, you go into the background of it um, and deep into it, you start realizing that the mujtahideen, the ulama of the past, right, particularly Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Shafi, Imam Malik, Imam Ahmed ibn Humble, and there are many of their time, right, many of their time. The rulings that they derived from the Qur'an and from hadith, you start realizing it's not really humanly possible. That this was the mysteries of revelation Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inspired within them. And it's not just we go solely based off of their inspiration and what their hearts felt. But for them to think on such a high level, when they looked at a verse of Qur'an or when they looked at a hadith, it's something that's so far beyond us. Right? You might study, for example, you know the, the proofs of Imam Shafi rahimahullah. In, in certain rulings, and you think, man, this is amazing. I would never have thought of something like this. This is genius. And then you study uh, the opinion of, like, maybe the Imam Muhanifa, hanifa for example, um, in a matter that he might disagree with, and you're, you're blown away again, right? And it's just like, you don't know how to give preference to one or the other. That's why, you know, on a side note, that's why we try to stick to one madhab, because it gets more confusing when you try and cross and bring everything else together, because these were great ulama, and they all had very strong proofs for everything they, they, uh, and the rulings that they gave. But you begin to realize that really it's the mysteries of revelation, that they reached such a level with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He began ge- inspiring them and opening their mind and intellect up to uh, certain aspects of revelation. And it's interesting, I mean, not that, you know, like today we don't have people at that level. But uh, when I was in Zambia, then I was teaching... And there was one student of mine, okay, he was probably like, he was about 40 years old or so, okay, and he was a sheikh. I mean, he was, he, he was a sheikh, but he was just starting his, uh, his like alim course, right? And we would ask him, I would ask the class questions. And he was somebody who, I mean, very clearly when you sit with him, you, you recognize he has a close relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I'd give the class homework. And there was three students, and two of the students, they would, you know, kind of, I'd ask them the next day, did you guys do it? The teacher can usually tell when you've done your homework or not, right? So they would try and kind of fib their way through it a little bit. But I knew they hadn't done it. Um, this other person, Sheikh Uthman, I asked him, I said, you know, ask him the, the, the question. And I knew he hadn't done it either. But he would just kind of put his head down and he would close his eyes for a minute, go into a type of meditation, and then he'd give me the answer. And I was amazed. This was day in and day out, time and time again. I was like, he's not, I know he's not studying this, but he's sitting there, he's meditating on the question, and then he's getting the answer. This is that what Imam Ghazali is speaking about. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opens the mysteries up to them. Not that Allah Ta'ala was opening mysteries up to him, right? I mean, if you study, you'll know the answer. But his relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the purity of his heart that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed him to attain was opening doors for him that was not open for other people you know that it was not open for other people and you would see that he was I mean, he was in his 40s he had a few kids he had a wife he had a house to run he had so many things to do a full-time student and at the same time he would grasp certain uh, he would grasp concepts much easier than the rest of the class would gra- uh, grasp them and so it's you start recognizing that this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how he works that when we develop a close relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then he starts opening these different things to us then Imam Uzair, as we mentioned, he gives definitions and defines the names of Allah Ta'ala and then he gives a counsel. That how can we have a part in the name of Allah, in this particular name of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala? So he says that, we'll, we'll kind of skip ahead a little bit uh, because we need to get on to another, the, other, the next name. But he says that the, <coughs> we should free our knowledge and our will. We should free our knowledge and our will um, from uh, and everything that is connected to our senses, that's what we should do. Meaning, because what is Quddus? it is transcendent above perfection. So now we cannot go transcendent above perfection, but we should allow our senses to be transcendent uh, above our like intellect. And so he talks about knowledge and will here, and he says that how can we? Um, basically, in summary, he says that we can. Uh, he says that we can free our knowledge from every fanciful and tangible and imagined thing regarding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how do we free our will from it? Or how do we we give this transcendency to our will? It is to free it from things that stem from the pleasures of desire, anger, enjoyment of food, intimacy, clothing, and from what is pleasing to the senses. Meaning, we start focusing our minds on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We start focusing our minds on our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It doesn't mean you don't have to have nice things. It doesn't mean you don't have to dress nicely. It doesn't mean you don't have to... Um, you know, try to live a comfortable life. That's not what's meant. But he says that we should, we should not make this our goal and our intent in doing what we do. And then he says, because uh, sensory and imaginary things are shared with animals, and we need to rise above the beasts. Right? Animals act on their senses and their imaginary, their perceptions and their desires. So we have to move above beasts. And then he gives an interesting in summary he says an aspirant is as exalted as the object to which he aspires as one who is intent on what enters his stomach is as valuable as what comes out of it but whoever is intent on Allah finds the level commensurate with his intent so if we are intent on food then you are then that means we are as valuable as if we are intent on filling our stomach we are as valuable as what comes out of it right but if we make our intention our focus on closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and proximity to Allah, then that, then we will achieve that level in whatever way we can. Meaning, we don't come on par with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? That's not what we're saying. But it means that that proximity is what would be attained. And this is also an interesting point because you think about the difference between insan and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And obviously, there's no comparison, you know. But SubhanAllah, Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala, He says when He's discussing creation, He says, What? Well, we, we created you from a drop of sperm, and we fashioned you, and we made you into what you are. So we look at the sperm, it's something that's what? It's like we consider it something dirty, right? Even uh, like in Islamic law, it's in the Sharia, if, if sperm is on like your clothing, or right, a, a man is intimate with his wife, then it needs to be cleansed away, right? You have to go and, and bathe. Right? Or if it's on your clothing, then you wash it away. It's not something that we pray with it on our, you know, on our clothes or what may be. And so, uh, and also, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes this najasa, this filth, and He fashions insan out of it. That is the being of Allah ta'ala. That's what happens when Allah creates. But what do we do? We take food, beautiful, delicious delicacies, we take it into ourselves, we consume it, and then what, is, what comes out of that is filth. Something that we cannot even stand to be around. And that's the difference between, one of the differences between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and insan. The insan takes something pure and makes it filthy. But Allah takes something filthy and makes it pure. And so then, the ulama, they write that you should, (coughs) what happens when we make Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala our goal and our intent? That we become, the manifestation of the hadith by, which is narrated by Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu which is a hadith Qudsi. So hadith Qudsi is that hadith which uh, is not part of is, its revelation from Allah Ta'ala to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam but it's not a part of Quran. So that's why it's called hadith Qudsi meaning Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is saying that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala said so he says inna allaha Jal qal that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala has said man li that whoever uh, whoever harms my wali my friend فَقَدْ بِالْحَرْبِ Then, I announced to him a proclamation of war. This tells us we have to be very particular not to harm anybody because we don't know who is a wali of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But we should be, those people, sometimes you get an idea, right? You travel the world, you start getting an idea. There's one such example that comes to my mind that an individual said, he said to me that there's a sheikh in Yemen, right? Habib Umar, Hafidhullah. He walked out of the airplane once and he's, you know, he's there and he's on his cell phone and he's got his cane and it's hanging from his wrist. And people come and they greet him. And oftentimes what people do is they'll, they'll you know, the mashaykh, they'll greet them, they'll shake their hand and they'll kiss their hand, right? It's a form of respect. And you find this uh, in the, within the companions also. What happened, it was Abdullah bin Masood and uh, Ibn Abbas So Ibn Abbas was from the family of the Prophet He's from Ahlul Bayt, right, or Alul Bayt rather. From the family of the Prophet so Ibn Abbas or Ibn Masud, he comes out of the Masjid, and Ibn Abbas is standing there, radiallahu anhu, and he's holding the reins of his camel, of Abdullah Ibn Masud's camel, and he's help. He says, "Let me help you get on get on your camel," right, like opening the door for somebody. So Abdullah Ibn Masud says, "No, no, you know, uh, don't do this. Like, you know, you are, you I'm not worthy of this type of treatment." So Abdullah Ibn Abbas says, "You are a scholar from amongst us, and this is how we show respect to our scholars." So right, opening the door for them, these types of things. Abdullah bin Masood responds to him how? He takes his hand, and he kisses Ibn, Mab- Ibn Abbas's hand. And he says that, and you are from the family of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and this is the respect that we show to the family of the Prophet So anyway, going back to Habib Umar, who, by the way, is from the family of the Prophet He comes out, and he, you know, he's on his phone, and people are coming and kissing his hand, and he's got his cane. And, uh, the person says that I saw him and I thought, what an arrogant person. Look at him. I mean, like, he thinks he's a big shot walking with his phone like a, like a superstar, you know? He says, as soon as I thought this, I felt my heart constrained, like I was going to buckle and fall. And right away I thought, okay, this is... I shouldn't be thinking these negative thoughts about it, right? <laughs> so this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He doesn't want negativity to be said and harm to come to his awliya. Then he goes on, he says, مما مما He says that, and my slave, he comes close to me, uh, he does not come close to me with anything that is more beloved to me than what I have made obligatory upon him. وَمَا عبدي بالنوافل حتى أحبه. And he continues, my slave continues coming closer to me with nawafil through supererogatory actions, things that are not required of him, until I love him. فَإِذَا أَحْبَبْتُهُ And when I love him, كُنْتُ سَمْعَهُ أَلَّذِي يَسْمَعُ به. Then I become the uh, ears with which he hears. و, uh, وَبَصَرَهُ أَلَّذِي يُبْصِرُ به. And I become the eyes with which he sees. And the hands with which he strikes, and the feet with which he walks, and if he asks me, then I will definitely give him. And if he seeks refuge from me, then I will definitely grant him refuge. So Imam Ghazali, he says, what that if we make Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala our focus, then what happens? we become a part of this hadith wherein Allah Ta'ala says that my slave kept so close to me, I become the ears with which he hears, the eyes with which he sees, the hand with which he strikes, the feet with which he walks. When he asks me something, I definitely give him. And when he seeks refuge, I definitely give him refuge. And the hadith goes on. But in, in, in short, Imam Huzayi says that whoever frees his will from the dictates of passion will lodge in the ab- abundance of the garden of holiness. So I wanted to go on to as um, it's, we have about 15 minutes. Does anybody have any questions? Or should we leave as for next week? Or should we go through? We may end up going over by a few minutes, if that's okay. Does anybody have to leave? Like, I don't want to make you miss something if you have to leave. It's okay, just raise your hand. No questions? Okay, so we'll try to go a little bit faster here. <clears throat> then we have as right? The next, the next name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what is this as salam is? Uh, as-salam means flawless. So how does Imam Ghazali describe this? He says, flawless from defect. Does anybody catch anything? Flawless from defect. You said earlier that uh, uh, he's not free from defect, rather he transcends perfection. Right. So Imam Ghazali says, we don't say he's free from defect because that would be, akin to, it'd be borderline insult. But then he said, do you have to go? oh you have class should yeah. we stop we can just ask questions or you guys have class every week at this time right 530, yep. 530, okay. Okay, ok I'll try to keep that in mind next time no um, so he says <clears throat> that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in one place he says he's saying free from defect is not appropriate but now he's saying he's flawless from defect so how does that make sense Right, we just spoke about how Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala opens the mysteries of revelation, right, to those people that are close to Him. So, what is Imam Ghazali? Like, this is something I was confused about. You know, I'm not saying I'm close to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Right, it's, we're just conveying what the ulama have said. So, Imam Ghazali, he says what happens here. He says that flawless from defect. This is different than free from defect because free from defect means that you may have had a defect and you overcame it. Flawless is that you never had it. Now, think about. The word flawless is used for what thing? The sisters maybe might be able to. Or any of the brothers that are married maybe can. A flawless diamond, right? What is a flawless diamond? A flawless diamond means that there's no defect in it. And once a diamond has a chip or a scratch or a defect, you cannot bring it back into a state of flawlessness. So flawless is different than being free from something. Just as that diamond, we don't say it's free from defect, we say it's flawless because once, it, it, it means that the defect was never there. And if, we had, if it had the defect, you could not restore it to its flawless state. So he says Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is flawless uh, from defect. Then the ulama go into a whole discussion about the word salam. And it's used in some form or another in many different places in the Quran. So one such place Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Wallahu yad'u ila daris salam. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He calls and invites you to Dar salam. Uh, مَنْ يَشَاءِ إِلَى سراط المستقيم, And he guides whoever he wishes to the straight path. So, meaning, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls you to the abode of peace. That's what as salam is. He calls you to the abode of peace. And that is Jannah. And he guides whoever he wishes by it. So, what is as salam? As salam is peace. With Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala regarding him, we say flawless. But in general, the word as salam means peace. Salam is what? Safety from affliction safety from affliction and any harm or difficulty. So Sufyan bin Uyayna rahimullah who's a great scholar of the past uh, not not far from the time of the Prophet he said that the most frightening situations an individual faces throughout his life are three. What are they? The day a person is born because they're moving out from a place of comfort the womb of the mother to this world. They're coming out of their comfort zone. So it's scary and the child and the infant doesn't know what's going on. So it's one of the most frightening situations. Number two is death. because at that moment when you're going through the Sakaratul Mot, when you're passing from your what's happening is your soul is passing from this world into the next. So you're going back and forth, right the throes of death. This is frightening. why? Because you're seeing things, beings and creations that you've never seen before. You're seeing the world of the angels now. you're seeing the world of the jinns, right? You might see the jinns around, you might see the angels. And what happens when you die? The angel of death, if you're a good person, he comes to you in a beautiful state, smelling beautiful. And he takes your soul slowly up to the heavens and the angels rejoice to meet you. But if we're a wicked person, the angel of death comes to us in a very um, frightening uh, uh, stature and face and form. And so death is the second uh, 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 most frightening moment to a person. It says the third frightening situation is resurrection. Because you're being gathered, first of all, it's almost like birth again, because you're now coming out of the ground, right, and you're being gathered in front of a huge assembly. And there's a story of Isa Islam. and what, what was one of the miracles he did is he brought people back from the dead, by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he brought one such person back from the dead, and this person gets up, and this person had passed away not very, uh, not, not very long ago. He passed away, young person, black hair. When he arose from his grave, he had white hair. So the people asked, they said, what happened to you? We buried you just recently and you had black hair. He said, I thought it was the day of judgment. He was so frightened, his hair went white. Right? So this is a frightening moment, the day of resurrection. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or Imam Zali rahimullah, he brings a verse of Quran. He says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says regarding salam, وَس, uh, وَسَلَامٌ Wa Yamut Wa Yoma Describing Yahya alayhi salam in Surah Maryam. He says that peace be upon him the day he was born, the day he, uh, the day he died, or the day he will die rather, and the day that he will be resurrected. So this is the virtue that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given. Meaning what? He has put salam, salama on Yahya al Meaning he will not experience any such frightening moment. Those, those moments were very peaceful for him. That he was protected from any harm or difficulty. Meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved him from the ills of these situations. Then Imam Zahid rahimullah, he goes on and he says, Salam is also... So it's sound, it's it's safety from difficulty. It's also sound speech. Salam also is sound speech. What does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? He says, that the servants of Al-Rahman, the servants of the compassionate, are those who walk on the earth humbly. And when the ignorant people address them and speak to them, then what do they say? They say salam. Meaning we don't let the ignorant people affect us with their speech. And we respond to them with salam, with sound speech. We don't respond to them in a negative way. We, just, we don't even let it be a worth our time. We brush it off our shoulder and we don't harm them. Right? We have this attitude that when someone says something to us we don't like, we respond to them. I have to show them. I have to get the last word. But rather, what does the Qur'an tell us to do? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, simply just say salam. Don't harm them. Let them have sound speech. And the Prophet ﷺ, he used to encourage the spreading of salam. There's a hadith he says "afsus salam," meaning spread salam amongst each other. He commanded the Muslims spread salam against each other. There's a hadith that the Prophet ﷺ said that uh, uh, close to the end times will be when people will only give salam to those that they know, meaning Muslims will walk by each other and we won't say anything because we don't know them. Now what happens? We're in the masjid, we'll walk by people we even know and we don't even say salam, right? But why did the Prophet ﷺ tell us to spread salam? Because it brings unity in the hearts it removes that disunity, it, removes, it brings the hearts together. So he commanded us, spread salam. what? Spread sound speech. Bring this alive in our, in, our, in our life. And this is, you know, we should make an effort to do this. Similarly, if somebody, you know, you, you might be at odds with somebody. Maybe you don't, you had a disagreement, you might have had a major disagreement. When you walk up to them and you say, you just give them salam. All of a sudden they kind of cool off. They, they they back down a little bit. They're not so like hard against you, right? And but what happens is some something, some conflict happens and we just let it get worse and worse. And sometimes our lack of speaking to each other also makes things worse. But if we just go and give them salam, we don't have to do anything else. We know that okay, we just don't get along. Let's live with that, okay? Let's realize that and just be content with that. But at least we can go and say salam and smile. Then at least that that rancor in our hearts for each other will then begin to go away. And it may take several attempts, but it will begin to go away. And another hadith, the Prophet said, "Al uh, Muslimuna uh, uh, that the, the Muslims are who? Man salima musliman min lisanihi wa yadihi. salatu wasalam, write that. A Muslim is who? A person who other Muslims are, fi- are safe from their tongue and their hands. Now the ulama right, they say don't, don't take this to mean that uh, you, know, you don't bring harm to Muslims only. The reason the Prophet ﷺ said a Muslim is one who other Muslims are not harmed by, right, the second Muslim here, is because they were in Medina Munawwara and it was, it was pretty much only Muslims around, right? I mean, some of the hypocrites and munafiqeen were around, but outwardly they were Muslim. This actually is to be taken and applied to people of all faiths. That a Muslim is a person who nobody is harmed by their tongue or their hand. Meaning, we don't physically harm them and we don't verbally harm them either. But our, I mean, like, you know, cursing and these types of things have become so common. It's become a part of our everyday speech. We hear it. We're becoming desensitized to it, you know. I mean, even now, like, you know, in, in, you know people are telling me that on TV and things, very few swear words are left uh, uh, censored. Pretty much everything is being said, you know, at some time or another, right? You, movies and these types of things, what would have been considered... Um, you know, some, what would have been considered like NC-17 15 years ago is now like PG-13 or radar. That's a different point. But anyway, a person is somebody who doesn't, uh, who doesn't bring harm, who others are not harmed by their hand nor their tongue. And that's what we have to try and embody. This is how we take a share of this name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, As-Salam. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has also said, uh, and it's it's his mercy upon us that he says, uh, That he is the one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is the one, uh, sorry, uh, that he is the one who sends salutations upon you. He blesses you and the angels send blessings upon you, Right? they take you out he takes you out from the darkness and into the light wa bil and allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to his slaves or to his believers very compassionate very merciful tahiyyatuhum yoma he uh, their greeting on that day the day that they meet allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will be salamun Wa ajran karima and allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says so what is he saying that allah ta'ala is merciful to his believers and their greeting to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala on the day that they meet Him will be salam. Their greeting will be salam. Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala will give salam to us. That on that day we meet Him, right, if we have lived an upright lifestyle and we have believed in Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, then He will not allow any anguish or any difficulty to co- come upon us. We will be protected and have safety. We will have salama from difficulties, from illnesses, from hardships, from tribulations. And so Imam Ghazali says that the one who who his who uh, who has salama, uh, or sorry, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, uh, Imam Ghazali says that the servants when they have salama uh, in their own life, then they are free from committing disobedience secretly and openly. So this is also how we can bring this salama and the safety and security into our life, and how we can take a share from the name of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Then the counsel that he gives, he says every servant whose heart is free from deceit, hatred. Envy and evil intent, and whose limbs are unblemished by sins and forbidden actions, and whose attributes are not affected by inversion and the reversal, will be one who comes to Allah the Most High with a flawless heart. So, what does He say? <clears throat> that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has said, "Salamun alaykum bima sabartum fani'ma that peace and blood, uh, peace and, and safety be upon you. Those of you who had patience, what a blessed abode. What a blessed abode. Talking about Jannah. But Imam Ghazali says what? Those people who come to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with a flawless heart. We remove envy and hatred and, and uh, deceit and evil intent from our hearts. We, we protect our limbs from doing these types of actions to other people. Then what will happen? He brings that verse of Quran. يوم يوم إلا من إلا من that the believers on that day, right, they will say what? That, O oh Allah, do not let any, uh, do not let any, do not let me be disgraced. The day that we are raised, right? This is a dua that comes in the Quran. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says what? That day when neither wealth nor your family, children will be of any benefit to you. Because what happens? We buy our way out of difficult situations. We throw money around, right? Money sometimes, if we have a lot of wealth, it gets us out of a difficult situation. Right? Even something simple as like a traffic ticket. I've had a traffic ticket and I've gone to a lawyer, you pay them a little bit of money, they get you out, right? They get the traffic ticket dismissed. We used money to give us benefit that day. What happens? Sometimes we need an in with somebody. We might be applying for a job or something. What happens? We use our, our network. We use a friend. We use family somebody who has some standing with whatever we're trying to achieve and then they go and they uh, allow us to accomplish what our task is. So for example I knew somebody who also traffic ticket. They had a traffic ticket and uh, one of their clients happened to be the judge who was uh, overseeing the hearing for the traffic ticket. The judge looked at it and said okay yeah." Uh, the person started giving their defense the judge said look don't worry about it I'll just take care of it. They used their network so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that day when those types of things will not be of any benefit to you, what will be of benefit? The one who comes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala biqalbin salim, with a flawless heart. That is what will benefit us on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And so, <coughs> Imam Ghazali rahimullah, we'll, we'll end off here in a couple of minutes, inshallah. Imam Ghazali rahimullah, he says that, that, uh, I wanted to actually, the, the, the whole summary that he gives on the council. I wanted to just read, the, read it word for word. He said, that every servant whose heart is free from deceit, hatred, envy, and evil intent, and whose limbs are unblemished by sins and forbidden actions, and whose attributes are not affected by inversion and reversal will be one who comes to Allah, the Most High, with a flawless heart. Among people, whoever comes close in characterization to that true and unadulterated flawless one, meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whose quality cannot be duplicated, may be considered to be flawless. So we cannot achieve flawlessness, but if we attain proximity with Allah, because of His flawlessness, we could be humanly considered flawless. That whatever form we might be able to achieve it in, that we would be considered flawless. And by an inversion of His attributes, I mean that His reason will be imprisoned by His passion and anger, while the proper situation is the reverse of that. That anger and passion be imprisoned by reason and obey it. And if things are reversed, there will be an inversion. As there is no well-being when the prince becomes a vassal or the king a subject, nor can there be said to be well-being or Islam unless someone protects the Muslims by his speech and his actions. And how can someone be described as flawless who is not freed from his lower self? So this is how we can attain this. To attain flawlessness is to free our nafs, our lower self, from any type of wickedness that it may have. And so he says what? That... It doesn't, there's no well-being when the king becomes a subject. When you have the king of a land, if he becomes a subject of the people, there's no, there's anarchy, right? So similarly, we are meant to preside over our nafs, over our anger, over our desires. And just as there's no benefit and well-being when the king becomes the subject and the role is reversed, there's no benefit in us when our role becomes, our akil, our intellect and our soul becomes flipped with our nafs and our nafs begin to govern us. Right? So this is the, the counsel that Imam Ali gives. Now what happens when we say the tashahud? What are we saying in the tashahud? This is the blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that he has in every single salah, multiple times in the salah, he has made this a part of the salah. That when we sit in tashahud, usually most of, most of the salah we're making, we're reciting Qur'an. But when we sit in tashahud, what do we say? We are making a dua to Allah Ta'ala that, O oh Allah, you give salam to us. You put salama on us and upon the righteous slaves. Upon your righteous slaves. So, with this mindset now, what is salama? We should have this intention that when we sit for tashahud, this is what we are asking. We are asking Allah Ta'ala to make our hearts flawless, to remove difficulties outwardly from us and inward difficulties. Remove that, that allow us to be successful in that inward struggle. And then the the scholars, uh, you know, they write that, what is a dua that we make after the salah? Usually, salah finishes, we make istighfar 3 times right and then we say allahumma anta salam wa minkas salam tabarak ta ya jalali wal ikram we say oh allah anta salam you are as-salam wa minka salam and from you is salam what does that mean the scholars say the first as-salam is referencing the name of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as-salam and the second one is we're saying that oh allah from you there is safety and security against affliction that that's what we are asking for so now if we have these this understanding when we make the tashahud, when we make this du'a, then inshallah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will accept this du'a because it's coming in our salah, right? And it's coming immediately after salah and after istighfar and we're making this du'a to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we might become those people who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, يَوْمَ لَا يَنْفَعُ مَالُوا وَلَا بَنُونَ إِلَّا مَنْ سليم, That that day when no wealth nor children will benefit except the only benefit will be who comes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with a flawless heart. There any questions? <clears throat> Sorry, it was kind of rushed, especially the last the second name, but if we do one name a week we 're not going to finish for like a year and a half or something <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> ya yeah, Allah, forgive us of our sins. Ya yeah, Allah, you are perfect. Ya yeah, Allah, you are beyond perfection and you are flawless. Ya yeah, Allah, allow us to take a part in this, a, a, a share in this attribute of yours. Ya yeah, Allah, we sin openly and we sin privately. We sin by day and we sin by night. We teach others to sin. Ya yeah, Allah, we bring and invoke darkness and dhulmah to our hearts. But Ya yeah, Allah, you have said that you are the one who removes us from darkness to light, Ya Allah. You remove our hearts from darkness to light, Ya Allah. Remove the dulma from our hearts and grant us that nur and that illumination in our hearts. Ya Allah free us from the shackles of the devils and the shackles of our nafs, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, allow us to have that salama, Ya Allah. Allow us to have peace and tranquility, Ya Allah, in this life and in the next, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, you be pleased with us. You forgive us of our sins, our major sins, our minor sins. Make us those that are pleasing to you, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, grant us a life that is pleasing to you, a death that is pleasing to you. And raise us on Yom Al-Qiyamah with those that have pleased you, Ya Allah. Grant us a place under your perfect and supreme shade on Yom al Ya Allah, protect our parents. Forgive them for any shortcomings. Ya Allah, you nur- as they nurtured us when we were young, you have compassion upon them in their old age, Ya Allah. Allow us to serve them with afiyah, with goodness, Ya Allah and, and allow us to attain our Jannah through that, Ya Allah Let them not be displeased with us Ya Allah, protect our teachers and protect our mashakh, Ya Allah Forgive them of their sins Continue taking work of deen from them, Ya Allah Grant us pious spouses and pious families and pious children, Ya Allah Let our children be free from any defects outwardly and inwardly. Ya Allah, accept them for the khidmah of deen. Do not let any of their, uh, of their line in our line go astray, Ya Allah. Accept us for the service of your deen as ulama, as huffa, as sulaha, as muttaqin. Ya Allah. Ya Allah, accept us and accept us for our whole life, Ya Allah, for the work of deen. And Ya Allah, you be pleased with us and grant us the highest stages of Jannah without any, without any accountability, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, we ask you and we beg of you, Ya Allah, for all the good which the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi begged you for. And we seek refuge in you from all the evil which he sought refuge in you from, Ya Allah. Allahumma aghnina Allahumma aghnina bil ilm wa zayyinna bil hilm wa akrimna bil taqwa wa jammilna bil afia. Allahumma inna nas'aluka min khairi ma salalaka minhu nabiyyuka Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa na'udhu bika min sharri ma sta'adha minhu nabiyyuka Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa antal musta'an walakal balagh wa la hawla wa la quwwata illa billahi al-ali al-azim. Subhana rabbika rabbil 'izzati 'amma yasifun wa salamun 'alal mursalin walhamdulillahi rabbil alamin. Do everybody have a chance to sign the